0: space, the final frontier, an inconceivably vast space of near-to-entire emptiness that is inhospitable to human life. And out there, there's probably something like us, that is looking into the skies at the same time, looking at the stars and wondering, man, I really wish I could motherfuck some aliens to death right now. Combat in space has been a concept since the idea of space has been a thing, with both authors and scientists theorizing what the future of space warfare could be. But what is the reality of battle in space? Is it really all that's cracked up to be? And why do you, a writer living in a time where you're too old to drown your sorrows in TikTok fame, and too young to ever retire, give a shit? All on, why are you talking about this? nerd Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Way Nerd. and man, intro me is still going through it. Uh, I am your host, William, and I will be your navigator today, guiding you through sci-fi hell ruled over by an unknown number of Satans while I'm tripping balls. And if you don't know that's a Dune reference or a Warhammer reference, you understand why Games Workshop being so litigious is stupid. As always, before we get into the show, I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Means the world to have my voice playing just a touch too louder in a car speaker right now. Turn it down before I start saying naughty words, I'll embarrass you in public. That being said, make sure to download and stream the show. And if you're hearing this while someone stares deep in your soul from the next car over while they are blaring this over their radio, you do it too. Quickly. I cannot stop them from hurting you. Also, make sure to send in an email for episode 20 where we talk about everything that's happened in the last 19 episodes and roast the shit out of my dumb English degree having ass. Also, share the show with your friends, your four followers on TikTok to make you believe you're going to make it big someday, and the family that hasn't quite disowned you for this exact behavior quite yet. Listen, Jen, your family is worried about you. Oh, also, uh, Jen's family, they'll be $250 for my PayPal, thanks. Uh, If you want a longer message, you're going to have to pay me more. Anyways, let's go to the show. Ah, 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 Alright, so this week we're talking about space battles. Which is when, you know, two or more groups of people decide in the vast emptiness of space, this one particular speck of nothingness, deserves to kill each other over. I I know it's not that simple. No conflict ever is. But this week, we don't have a contrived little definition to give you, because, like, what? You want to know what combat is? What are you doing here if you don't know that? And if you do know and just like to hear me read definitions, five bucks and I'll send you a voice clip in re- reading the definition of any word. Double it if you want me to do it naked. Triple it if you want me to fuck up my words halfway through and not edit that out. Oh, and quadruple if you want me to do that naked. Uh, But what we will cover is space. Not the definition, but instead kind of think of it like some theaters of combat. And this entire first section is dedicated to making you understand how fucking bonkers reality is. And also to use later to tell you how dumb realistic space battles can be. But before we get to the actual theaters, we should talk about scale first. So, for all science and astronomical science, we do need to go over the measurements. So, at the smallest scale, we're going to go is kilometers, which is about 0.6 miles for my fellow American heathens, and Earth is 6,378.14 of these silly little things in diameter. But Earth radii aren't used in space measurements. Why? Well, because Earth, in comparison to the universe, is fucking tiny. The distance between the Earth and the Sun, about 23,454.8 Earth radii, is the standard system of measurement for space, called astronomical units. As long as you stay in the local area. Think like this. If light year is a foot, then AU is the inches. Uh, To show you how tiny Earth is, The distance between Earth and Mars is half an AU, or 11,727.4 times larger than the Earth itself. Also, Mars is almost as far away from us as we are from the fucking sun. Okay, so next is light years, which is how far light travels in one calendar year, excluding holidays and weekends, of course. And this is 63,000 AU. For some context, Light travels from the sun to Earth in about eight minutes. So, yeah, already the scale we're dealing with is titanic. Speaking of which, we have parsecs, which is 3.26 light years. Or, in other words, going the speed limit of reality itself, it would take three and a quarter years to almost make it to the next closest star, Proxima Centauri, 4.2 light years away. Yeah, I know. That's fucking wild. And finally, we have mega parsecs. Being 1 million parsecs. Yes, we have a measurement for that because we fucking needed it. Think about that. Reality is more than a single mega parsec. Something that compared to the size of Earth is like measuring from my house to South Korea in diameters of a fucking atom. Okay. So, let's go on to the actual theaters of combat. So first we have Geospace, which is the region between a planet's upper atmosphere and the outermost area of the magnetic field. So this is from the area where air stops being a thing all the way up to where you're no longer protected from cosmic radiation. So in the context of Earth, this is from about 10,000 kilometers above sea level. All the way to somewhere between 63,781.4 kilometers and 637,814 kilometers. Yeah, these are huge numbers. And the magnetosphere of Earth, the thing that protects you from cosmic rays, is 10 to 100 times larger than the Earth itself. Yeah, think about that. At the smallest scale of a space battle, We're talking about a theater of war larger than the distance between the love your parents have for you and the respect they have for you. And what was that, a 2 Wilberforce force burn? Listen to Waitat to understand that. Okay. So next, we have interplanetary space, which is the helio space of the local sun. Basically everything within the sun's range which is largely determined by both solar winds of the sun and its gravitational pull. And for our own solar system, this is somewhere between 50,000 astronomical units to two light years. The light years being based on the dominance our system has over other smaller stars within our same general area. So they count as part of our solar system. Yeah. Yeah. But beyond that, we have interstellar space, which is the space between stars. Here there's a ton of gases, dust, and radiation that super smarty scientists call interstellar medium. And this would be anything within the galaxy itself. Which is probably where most, if not all, human existence is going to be while we exist. And if you feel a sudden crushing dread that will always be contained, that's the human instincts in you talking. So, to become scientific for a second, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years, or 30,674.8 parsecs. Which means it would take a human being about 100,000 years to travel from one side to the other, going the maximum possible speed the reality allows you to go. So, don't feel contained. That is a massive area. None of us are ever going to live to see one percent of that, which I know that also feels containing. But fucking calm down, control your monkey brain. It's okay. Um, sorry, I know, I know, like half of you are still not calm. I know myself, so I know the kind of audience I would attract. Half of you are, are panicking, like, when you learn that the sun was going to explode in a couple billion years. Okay. Uh, but, finally, we have intergalactic space. And I do gotta say, much as I like space warfare, and I set this up as, like, an exploration of, like, the theaters of combat, intergalactic warfare is never going to happen. Just straight up never. And Why? Because there's nothing here. No debris, no gas, not even gravity or radiation. You'd be fighting over literally nothing. And this area is massive, with Andromeda, being the next closest comparatively sized galaxy, is 2.5 million light years away, or almost 1 megaparsec. And, you know, let's just, just for fun, how big is the universe? megaparsecs or 94 billion fucking years to go from one side to the other, which is also seven times older than the existence of reality itself. I want you to think about that. Everything that exists right now, everything that exists right now, even things that are as old as the universe, is seven times younger than an object would be if it traveled from light speed from one end of the universe to the other. That's how big our little box is. It's fucking insane. Okay, but getting over the wonders of space for a moment, uh, let's talk about what it's like out there. And this is going to be reasonably quick. Beginning with gravity and maneuvering. So unlike what you've learned in high school, gravity doesn't really ever end. just gets weaker. So weak that eventually it doesn't really affect you in a noticeable way, and fairly quickly too. I mean, even just within the geosphere, Earth's gravity eventually becomes negligible. And without that constant force, things that don't have energy acting on them just don't move. I mean, because there's also nothing pulling you towards the center, everything is suddenly on an X, Y, and Z axis, which, sure, sounds similar to stuff on Earth like aircraft, but in space this is actually really, really important. I mean, also, because of the radiation, I mean, basically everywhere, unless you're behind something to protect you from it, you're coming back to your ship looking like Wade Wilson, except not funny at all, and also absolutely dead. Which is a little funny. And on top of this, because there's no pressure from air, you know, dropping down to literally less than a tenth of a Pascal, and there is very little friction, you both can't breathe, but also if you want to stop or switch directions, you have to match your energy, moving you in the current direction, and not rely on air resistance and friction to slow you down. Oh, and with the low pressure, squishy things like, you know, human flesh, that doesn't provide enough structure to resist the internal pressure, would begin to swell and then burst. And finally, space is blisteringly cold, being about negative 455 degree Fahrenheit. Now, absolute zero, the lowest possible temperature that anything in existence could possibly drop to, is literally 4 degrees lower. The only reason why it's not absolute zero in space is because it's literally impossible to do that in nature. Oh, and by the way, here on Earth, we've done that multiple times. Man is an abomination to God and nature. We are constantly breaking the laws of reality because we want to, for fun. Okay, but so now that you understand the horrors of space in both the eldritch, inconceivable scale, and also how much it will instantly kill you by suffocation, implosion, cancer, and freezing, all simultaneously, let's talk about how you fight in it. Starting with fiction. In fiction, space battles are heavily influenced by a combination of two types of warfare, naval and aerial battles. And why is that? Well, I mean, we'll get into the history of why this was selected during the actual history section, but Largely because this is the only context we really have for something even close to similar. And much like space, infantry can't really exist in the air or in the water without a man-made combat platform. And aerial battles also work on the X, Y, and Z axis, but you know, are affected by shit like air resistance and gravity and other cringe. Meanwhile, sea battles are less affected by gravity, but are largely on the X and Y axis, much like land battles. So it would stand to reason that you take some parts of these and combine them to create something similar to what space battles might look like. So, you know, we should be looking at the basic constraints of those kinds of warfare. First of all, being reliant on your equipment. Regardless of the form of equipment, both naval and aerial combat relies solely on planes and boats. And because there isn't any technology today that can, like, deflect bullets and bombs, like in sci fi without making the armor too thick to be able to fly or float effectively, most of this equipment is really vulnerable to being taken out of the fight and potentially killing the crew pretty fucking fast. And this combination means that the kind of warfare you employ would be akin to skirmishing tactics moving quickly to avoid being hit in the first place and maneuvering in unpredictable angles, as well as using technology. To counter target locking meant to counter your movements on the defensive side, while on the attacking side using your target locking weapons, high rate of fire and electronic warfare to disable and destroy enemy vehicles. And this is reflected in the makeup of fleets, I am most mission specific support and core ships and aircraft are well protected by much smaller and less important ships and aircraft. How you ask? Well, through threat and body blocking. So, for example, a bomber plane in World War II can't really dodge very effectively and is relatively sluggish in the air, so they are really vulnerable alone. So, smaller aircraft move around the plane to keep potential attackers threatened, or, in other words, just about to fucking die, so they're more focused on maneuvering to avoid, you know, getting to meet Jesus HVAC installer Christ well before they wanted to and if necessary, and often because attack and craft want to eliminate these threats, distracting enemy craft and soaking up hits so that the mission can happen. And this is the same with naval battles as well. And space warfare takes from this. Meaning that in addition to usually having shields, because you need to ramp up the tension by having your absolutely not stereotype head engineer shout about how the shields are about to give out every five fucking seconds instead of just calming down, Space fleets in Fiction are often a few large ships with support and mission roles, surrounded by smaller ships and carrying fighter craft, perform dogfights and strafe across the enemy's larger ships, and take them out in quick attacks. And here's the thing. This is all very exciting and cool stuff. Close range admiral duels with dogfighting fighters and fields of wreckage, pulling both high G maneuvers in the name of their respective empires that ultimately mean autocratic hellscape, But, this isn't very realistic. So, let's look at the most realistic angle available. What would real space battles be like? Well, the first thing to consider would be why it's happening. I mean, because scientists and military geniuses have been thinking about this for literal decades, and what they've concluded is that realistically, we're not fighting for space. We'd be fighting over things with, you know, value, like territory and resources, and shit we actually care about. And because that's what we care about, most of the battles in space would be close to and surrounding a planet. And because it's expensive and also takes up a lot of area, I want to avoid saying space again, uh, to put people up there, and they're really close to the planet anyways, it's just a lot more reasonable to use unmanned satellites. Next, because the planet's resources are what you want, the objective of a space battle would not be to hold space. Because that's a fucking stupid thing to do. Again, it's like ants trying to divvy up the Pacific Ocean. So rather than that, it's about orbital dominance and being the only one with a massive fuck-off space laser cannon pointed directly at your enemy's capital. Which turns warfare in space into four objectives. Firstly, Deception, so your opponent acts in their own worst interest. Second, disturb, degrade, or deny their space combat capabilities. Third, destroy their means of dominance. And four, deter counterattacks or defend from counterattacks. Sound boring yet? Well, it gets worse. Because the next thing to consider is how slow and deliberate the fighting would be. Because of the massive scale of space and the amount of force required to change direction, especially for a satellite set in an orbit around a planet, most orbital paths are really easily predictable. So rather than a bunch of pilots zipping around and trying to feel out each other's moves in the most homoerotic way possible, it's actually just a bunch of nerds sitting in a military base on the ground, doing some math, firing a shot, and then waiting. Yep, boring as shit. But, what do I mean, predictable orbit? Well, that's actually the next consideration. See, because of the cost of putting things in space, and how unnecessary it is for satellites to really alter their orbits or land, with most being scuttled, rather than recovered on the ground, it would be detrimental to put an engine on them. Because that's, that's extra weight. And also you would need fuel, which is even more weight, and the engineering cost, which is money, So a lot of them just don't have it. Which means a lot of these vessels don't or can't shift their orbits. Meaning if you know the speed, altitude, and orbital shape, or what their position will be, you can very easily position and track the satellite. Even when you can't see it or know exactly where it is. I mean, even if you're just given the data, you can find it pretty easily. And also what I mean by space big... Well, I mean, obviously you weren't fucking listening earlier when I discussed scale, but okay, I will tell you just once. So, taking Earth for example, the difference between low Earth orbit and geosynchronous orbit is about 50 trillion cubic miles. And how much is that, you ask? Oh, only 190 fucking times bigger than Earth. And since you could reasonably put a spy satellite that's about the size of a fucking boombox into space... If you want to shoot that down, you have to scour for literal months or even years to find the right one. Think about that. Try to find a single specific boombox on Earth in the 1990s. Oh, but actually, you'd need to look at 190 Earths in the 1990s to find one boombox. And even when you find it, you need to use your own satellite's orbit and whatever tiny little jet boosters that you manage to slap on there to speed up, slow down, incline or decline your orbit to line up the shot. And because of the distances, combined with needing to be generally, vaguely on the same plane and in close proximity to make sure you don't miss without colliding with the fucking thing, might take months. And holy shit if the enemy finds out what you're doing. Then they're trying to maneuver their spy satellite while maneuvering an interceptor satellite to engage yours, or alternatively, shooting a laser at it from the ground to send your satellite to Mecca Allah. And this cat and mouse could last anywhere between a few weeks to over a year. Because once you can track it, you know generally where it is, even if they edit their orbit, you know, since it would take a long time. It's the most frustrating thing ever, as you can see the fucking thing but no, it's going to take a whole nother birthday before you can send it to where the bad robots go when they die. Which is hell. They just go to normal hell. And then there's the last consideration. Space debris. Think. You aren't dealing with static objects. These guys are moving very, very fast. And because there isn't much, if any, resistance, if you send a satellite to Techno-Jesus... Then all of its pieces are still moving the same speed, but also now have the momentum of the impact. So let's say that's going north at five hundred thousand miles per hour, and you hit it. Okay, well now you have eight pieces going north at one million miles per hour, twenty-seven going northeast at five hundred thousand miles an hour, and five point five thousand pieces going west at two hundred thousand miles an hour. So what that means is that these pieces are going to blast into other orbits. And uh-oh, there goes the ISS, HBO, Internet for All Southeast Asia, two Department of Defense satellites, your, your badass space laser, and the entire orbital server of furry porn created to allow furries to survive the apocalypse. And this chain reaction of impacts destroys satellites indiscriminately and also causes a cloud of extremely dangerous shards of metal that might just cancel satellite and rocket launches for months, weeks, or even years, and also probably require a cleanup effort. And on top of that, the nation whose satellite you just kaboomied is probably going to come at you from the ground. So now there's a war going on, and because you took out all the internet and the furry porn, everyone on Earth is mad at you too. So it's not like you're going to get any friends from that. But, I mean, yeah, that's pretty boring, right? I mean, especially to write or read. Well, except for the part about taking out the furry porn. That would be kind of funny. But let's do what most people do to me and ignore it. Uh, Assuming that you just really want to use spaceships to fight, let's talk about that. Beginning with what weapons would be theoretically used. So first we have ballistic weapons. These being ballistic missiles. Now on Earth, missiles are super, super powerful and are hard to take down, and are also super destructive on formations and structures. But, this isn't true in space. See, ballistic missiles are actually really fragile. We don't see that much on Earth because the scale is a lot smaller, but ballistic missiles are actually kind of sluggish in comparison to other potential weapons. And because they're fragile, these weapons can't... And because they're fragile, these weapons can't really be launched from the ground into space consistently, because there's a good chance it doesn't make it to space just because of, like, hitting debris or blowing up an atmosphere because it got too hot. You know, like, things like that. And, added to that, these guys are really easy to see because it's a thin piece of metal with a fucking fire launching out of the back. Meaning that Most ships could very easily see them and then shoot them down with lasers because, honestly, they know where it's going. There's only one place it could go, and it's them. Now, I added on to that, when hitting unmanned ships, they don't actually do a whole lot. Why? Well, because besides the direct impact and shockwave through the solid material of the vessel, shockwave simply doesn't happen, and there's no fireball. Because... Simply put, you need a medium for the shockwave and the fire, and unmanned ships have no air on them. On manned ships, however, if you could hit, you'd absolutely decimate it. Because think, a ballistic weapon's primary form of damage to the shockwave, which wrecks shop on Earth as it jellifies organs and rips apart metal. But the thing with the shockwave is on Earth the force is limited. And why is that? Well, because the air has a place to go. There's always enough air around to displace it. But consider if a missile breaks through the hull of a ship. This is a very small area filled with pressurized air, and the air has nowhere to go because the force of the explosion is pushing the air directly away from the only hole out. Meaning that if the bomb goes off at the rear of the ship and you're at the front, you might as well be right next to it as the force just multiplies all the way down. And then as a bonus, because there's a fucking hole now and all the air is super pressurized, it's gonna get the big suck from sexy mommy-dommy eldritch void, and now the entire ship is emptied out like your ass after sushi night at the strip club. And this doesn't even take into account nukes. Which, in addition to blasting your heart out of your dick hole, Will also probably imprint the shadow of your arteries blasting out of your balls onto the wall behind you. Also, because there's less energy directly transferred into heat, nukes can do an even bigger war crime as radiation racks its way through the ship and probably pumps enough irradiated goosh into your space shushy shush. I, <laughs> I'm not going to cut that one out because, look man, I tried to make the joke, but I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, anyways, enough of a goosh to, to make Mary Jane getting cancer from Peter Parker's spider cum look like pansy shit by comparison. And yes, that did happen. I'm sure most of you know about that, but to those of you that didn't, yes, that was a thing that happened. Uh, also, it would probably make a Geiger counter just explode. But, uh, moving on from, uh, Spider-Man's jizz, uh... We have electronic warfare, which is the form of warfare using computers and technology like a fucking nerd instead of strangling someone who's just barely not a child with your bare hands. Like a real man. Electronic warfare is a combination of communications technology, positional systems, surveillance, sensors, and hacking systems. Basically, these are all things required to detect and find enemy ships take over their systems, and do human rights violations, like turning up the temperature or closing the door on their pee-pee, as well as organized formations and calculate shooting. Uh, most likely, this would also include drones and satellite warfare. Like, satellite warfare around your ship. Oh my god, train. Stop, please. Sorry, things are uh, a mess today. Um, next is kinetic bombardment which takes two forms. Firstly, and most terrifyingly, is orbital kinetic bombardment. And these quote-unquote theoretical weapons are satellites that can potentially drop massive tungsten rods from orbit, being taken by gravity and the momentum down to Earth, giving this weapon the energy of a fucking nuke that is largely undetectable and can pierce otherwise unassailable bunkers. Oh, and you can aim them at singular people individually with laser guidance systems and calculated descents. Now I say quote-unquote theoretical because I think these actually exist and are currently in use. Why? Well because when the US government developed them, they dropped the project suspiciously fast, despite it going well. Out of that, is there are reports of a factory in China exploding out of nowhere with no warning, flames, and a massive crater right through the middle while the U.S. was in heated economic negotiations with China. And the black shape looks suspiciously like the simulations of kinetic bombardment. Now, okay, I understand your skepticism. So, my own insane rambling conspiracy theory aside, What does this look like between ships? Well, they would be non-explosive hardened projectiles like railguns, or maybe even fucking cannons, launching slugs the size of cars and buses. And these things would sure be devastating as about two tons of iron slams into your ship going about the speed of a fighter jet after a steady die of cocaine, grease, and laxatives. But compared to other space weapons, are very cheap and slow. You know, it's like fighting a modern war against N-16s using a homemade muzzle-loaded pipe gun. Like, sure, it's a fucking gun. And it'd be scary to have one pointed at you, but it's not a good one. Especially compared to what everyone else has. And, like, sure, again, if you ran up on, like, a squad of soldiers with one, that would be panic-inducing, but, like, Eh. Uh, And finally, we have Directed Energy Weapons. These are things like your laser beams, your realistic laser beams, plasma weapons, particle accelerators, radiation weapons, and EMPs. And these weapons use the spectrum of energy, particularly the electromagnetic spectrum, which is the only spectrum of energy, as a weapon against your targets. Uh, Currently in real life, there aren't really any practical models, and we're only really in the experimental stages. At least on the ground. I mean, it's theorized on in the vacuum of space, you can shoot for insane distances without much, if any, force lost. At the speed of light. You know, so like your particle accelerators and radiation weapons would be meant to kill crew, sci-fi lasers and plasma weapons to destroy the ships, and the realistic lasers and EMPs to disable sensors and ship systems. I mean, and... Going into space, these would likely be the bread and butter of combat. Which now brings us to the practical considerations of realistic space battles. So, first and foremost, because if you use manned craft, you need to keep the hull intact. This kind of warfare would be similar to submarine warfare. Like, if there's a breach, everyone will probably die. Because remember, the hull is keeping air in and pressurize the temperature and the temperature at a reasonable level and keeping out all of that that your liver, radiation, and space debris. Don't ever make me say that again, me. I'm I will I'll fucking kill you. I can't say <laughs> Uh ignore that I said that. Uh so if you lost any part of the hole, suddenly your temperature, air pressure and breathable air nose dies while listening to Dream On while the radiation skyrockets, while listening to Rocket Man. There we go. So, with that in mind, considering that the bread and butter weapons travel at the speed limit of reality, and also travel faster than you can see, you'd want to be pretty far away and also keep moving. Preferably at a distance where you can, you know, quote unquote see attacks coming and either avoid them or intercept. You know, for example, if you set up at 0.4 AU, or the distance from the sun to mercury, you'd have about three minutes to detect and avoid the blast of a laser beam. But like what we talked about satellite warfare, that's not really enough time, all things considered. Because of the massive ships and the speeds you could be going, maneuvering might take precious time. And that's if you saw the shot as it was coming out of the cannon's urethra. So I think the closest you'd want to be is like 1 AU, or about 8 minutes of response time. Now, here's the fucky thing. So, shooting and shit would be highly influenced by the distance. You know, like if you shot at something the same distance as the moon is from Earth, the delay is about 1 second. Why? Well, because if you see it traveling and shoot directly at it, that light took one second to get to you. Meaning you'd have to lead the shot by at least two seconds. One second for the light it's reflecting to reach you, and one second for your shot to hit. And while on Earth, the delay of light isn't an issue because the scale is so small, it is an issue in space. Because of that son of a bitch that had the audacity to be within come shot range of your space laser is moving at a thousand meters per second, then you'd be off target by 2,000 meters aiming directly at it, which is 1.2 fucking miles. But that's only light speed weapons. Imagine a railgun. Modern railguns we've built on Earth fire about 5,400 miles an hour. I mean, that is fast as fuck. But, using the same scenario, it would take the shot 42.66 hours to reach where you aimed or 42,600 kilometers. You know, almost 11 Earth radii. So you have to calculate their flight path and aim for where they'll be almost two days from now. Picture that. You're in the Space Navy, and your job, your shift, is to find out where to shoot this target, lock onto position, fire, and then by that time your shift is over. And then two days later, that's when you check if that shot that you made two days ago landed or not. Now, this is all combined with the literally astronomical scales. Think like this. You're basically firing at the head of a needle from a mile away with a bow. Except it's not a bow. It's an arrow that you're handing off to your friend's decrepit old grandpa to stick into the target. Except... He's three-quarters blind and is just trusting you handed him the arrow in the exact position and spot to hit the middle. And you can't go check on him either. Your legs don't work for some reason. You have to wait for his buddy, John, who's standing next to the target, to mosey on back at old man I just shit myself pace, Yeah, you know, after they spend probably two hours talking about golf and how much they miss the amount of pussy they got in high school, to tell you that actually Grandpa walked right past him while they were talking and stuck the arrow into the window of your local McDonald's, terrifying a bunch of children. Because, ultimately, what you're doing is firing a human-scale object on a planetary scale, with weapons that bend our understanding of how reality is meant to work, to arrive on target in a time frame we're not used to talking about in the context of a fight. I think, when was the last time you heard of Saw or participated in a real-life fight that lasted more than a minute? Yeah, well, in space, a one-minute fight would make you a strategic mastermind. Okay, and finally, space debris. Which, like in satellite warfare, would be a massive fucking problem for the same reasons we talked about there. Yeah, let's say the engagement speed, you know, the speed that you want to be at when you get into the fight, is about a third of the speed of light, and an enemy ship is heading about four degrees to the left of your exact spot on the bridge. and you. Below that son of a bitch with a family at home, and also their sent, and also their sentience, and will live. They'll haunt you forever after you finish your deployment. Realize you're responsible for more human misery entering the world than a mafia hitman, out of the sky. But for now, you're celebrating. But you don't even have time for the trauma to sink in yet, or to finish your celebration, because if they were one AU away, then all that debris is still coming at you at one third of light speed which means you have about 24 minutes to move out of the way before body parts live munitions and chunks of spaceship are treating your ship like it's an anime waifu that has caught the attention of a hentai artist but let's assume there's two other enemy ships and one of them is 32 degrees below you and 18 degrees here right and it's about 2.5 au away and they just fired a laser Oh, and the other one is 29.7 degrees straight above you and is rapidly closing on your position with its ship-length railgun ready to hawk the thickest loogie of pure steel you've ever seen directly into the back of your neck at 10,000 miles an hour. Where do you go? And quickly, you have 24 minutes before your Swiss cheese by wreckage and maybe 20 minutes before you get ass-blasted in the face by a laser. Oh, and you can't go up because you're getting closer to both that ship that is hurtling towards you Apparently without any care for their lives. And their loogie, they'll probably reach you in like two days. Think. Think, Captain, right now. What are your orders? Don't write it down. Pick a direction. Any direction but up. Pick a direction. You have 20 minutes and you're going to take 15 to move. Pick right now. See? That's, that's stressful. Also extremely dangerous for everyone involved. I mean, by the end of the battle, you're more likely to get hit by debris or missed shots than another ship deliberately trying to hit you. Okay. But with that, let's hop on over to the history section. And we start off in the 2nd century AD. And no, I'm not joking. This also isn't some, the aliens built the pyramids and the lizard people are coming to fuck your kids kind of shit. The Egyptians built the pyramids without aliens because aliens have better things to do than stack fucking rocks, you idiot. And the only people trying to fuck your kids are Catholic priests, Republican senators, and people you already know. The phone call came from inside the house. Instead, this is the first concept of space warfare. Written by Lucian of Samosata. That's not how you pronounce that, but I don't care. In his series, "True History," which is a satire of basically the entire world at that time, and includes a war between the king of the Sun and the king of the Moon to colonize the morning star using ships I can almost guarantee influence spelljammer because the people that made that game were fucking nerds. And they still are. I'm not saying that they're all dead, but they're nerds. But beyond this, space wasn't really a big concern for a long time. Largely, humanity thought of the sky like, you know, a video game skybox. The stars were past this invisible force field, or, you know, represented the ceiling of reality. And for a long time, this was good enough. And the skies for birds and the gods, and also that one thing we do where we shoot direct arrows directly upwards to kill ourselves. Is that too dark? Maybe. But what was captivating was the idea of future war a genre created about 1871 with the book The Battle of Dorking where Germany invaded Britain using flying machines and highly destructive future weapons which I mean, if you know your history is fucking ridiculous because you know Germany and Britain would never go to war with each other during an era of flying machine wait Nazis Nazis. Uh, did George Tompkins predict the future? I mean, the same way that seeing two rapidly industrializing military superpowers sharing not only the same continent, but the same general area of that continent eventually going to war with each other is. You know, like, sure, the use of flight and stuff is kind of crazy, especially for the time, but keep in mind that a pretty good way to narratively avoid the whole British Navy being the biggest ass-kickers in the ocean at the time is to fly over them. But... You know, again, this started the genre of future war, which was popular all the way through to 1911, where the last story of this era of popularity being the Lord of Labor, which featured missiles and also disintegration rays. And then, you know, World War I happened and people were reasonably kind of over war speculation. Until after World War Two, where the books and stories about warfare, space war especially, became about the horrors and moral implications of going to war on an interstellar level where humans where human lives turn from statistics to data points and a supercomputer's data card. Yes, I did I did just pronounce it two separate ways. Get bent. And in nineteen fifty seven, real world history happens. See, with the launch of Sputnik one, the US military started to panic. Because if you Didn't know, and don't listen to my other show. We were doing the whole Cold War with Russia. Listen to the other show, you motherfucker. But the king of the skies was the American spy plane. Able to fly higher than any weapon on the ground could shoot, and also was faster and more maneuverable than any plane could get close enough to engage. So, in order to add a few inches to the dick measuring contest, Russia put a proof-of-concept satellite in space, prove that you could have a spying device orbiting the fucking planet. Which, if you don't know, was out of range of, I mean, basically everything. Which then launches the space race. And then the next year, America uses the Explorer program to launch our own satellite. You know, just not to be outdone. And what happened then is that the USA and USSR locked eyes from across the room and interpreted that brief moment of pure animalistic sexual magnetism as a threat because we're both somehow more homophobic than the other one, and started competing to prove that we were the manlier man by figuring out how to kill people in space. Uh, Speaking of which, we have our first interstellar story with Starship Troopers, a story following people adopted into the military of the fascist Earth government, dressed in power armor and wielding weaponry that makes Eisenhower piss his pants in joy, getting stomped and stomping all over aliens. Hmm. it kind of sounds, uh, I guess you could call them, like, uh, space marines, you know? And, look, if that sounds familiar, yes, yes it does. Uh, It's also nothing like the movie, by the way. But anyways, into the 1960s, the USSR begins the ALMAZ project, a project designed to test and create ways to do in-orbit satellite inspection because no one thought, oh, fuck, well, now how do we get them down when building Sputnik? And also determining if they needed to scuttle them or, aka, blow up your own shit if necessary. Now, sure, this sounds kind of harmless of like retrospectively realizing that you lost the shit in the sky that you now need to figure out how to maintain and you know also like being responsible by getting rid of it when you don't need anymore but the not so sly less subtle than wearing a condom on your belt to a date purpose was to tell the u.s hey we can fix the shit you break and also blow up your shit Not to be outdone again, in 1962, the U.S. performs the Blue Gemini Project, a.k.a. Project Blue Waffle, to make the Soviets look it up on their dad's computer, to begin putting satellites in orbit that can not only look into the Kremlin's window and see Khrushchev's whack-fucking-hairline, but also put weapons in space. Which is like someone giving you an underhand compliment like, you're brave to wear your hair like that, and responding by pulling out a 45 caliber handgun and a picture of their mother. Now also, the US test Starfish Prime, which besides being one of the Antelotrons, the worst Transformers ripoff, was a test to see if you could disable satellites using the electromagnetic pulse from a nuke. And, uh, yeah, it turns out you can do that, and also almost blow the entire goddamn atmosphere off the planet. Yeah, we almost did that. Oh, and we also took out so many satellites, it caused an international incident and caused a lot of companies that were kind of relying on those satellites to have an economic crisis. So, you know, whoops. Uh, But totally unrelated in any way to that, in 1967, the UN creates the Outer Space Treaty, which does things like, territorial claims in space, nukes and chemical weapons, weapons of mass destruction, military installations, damage to space bodies without international authorization, and makes astronauts, cosmonauts, space scientists, everyone wants to fuck, into representatives of humanity and not their nation. Totally unrelated. 100% completely unrelated to America almost ending the fucking world with a nuke. And not even trying to. <laughs> but two years later, Star Trek would begin. Now, its impact on sci-fi is obviously massive, but with space battles in particular, they were huge. Star Trek, being created by nerds and Pacific War veterans, was highly influenced by other sci-fi writers, who were also often vets, and naval and aerial warfare. And so they drew on those influences, making space warfare the way it is today. Oh, and then, you know, also Star Wars would copy that in 1977 and add details of the fighter ships and shit that are also everywhere. But we're not talking about them today because we've mentioned Warhammer four times now. If I talk about another notoriously prolific copycat protective over the work that they 90% stole, I'm going to have an aneurysm and it's going to be your fault. But uh, speaking of the 70s, seeming to forget about the Outer Space Treaty... Anti-satellite weaponry continues to advance until we have the capacity to send them to Electro-Buddha from the dirt. Oh, sorry, I meant scuttle. And continuing into the 1980s, space warfare is being considered more and more, with space of space laser weapons meant to fry sensors, cameras, and other surveillance equipment. And in response, the U.S. government founds the Star Wars program, which is meant to defend American extraplanetary assets which has supposedly been suspended. I don't buy it. But also, like, come on, dude. You you signed a treaty in the late 1960s saying that there were no non-terrestrial <laughs> assets allowed in space. And then you put them up there and then started a program to protect the assets you're not allowed to have. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Uh, we we do that a lot, by the way. If you didn't know that, uh, throughout American history, we have we do that too much. Okay, but then we get to 2019 with the founding of the Space Force. Space Force, being a new branch of the U.S. military, meant to basically continue the Star Wars program, which is kind of scary. Why? Well, because either this is a level of incompetence and vanity we've never seen before given that there is no reason to have an entire branch of the military for space combat yet, or because there's a very good reason to have one, and the U.S. military isn't interested in telling us that. So either way you cut it, we're fucked. Either the government spent literally billions of dollars and years of bureaucracy and paperwork for a vanity project everyone thinks is stupid, or the government knows the aliens of the moon Nazis are coming but don't want to cause a panic. And uh, with that, let's hop on over to why this matters in the first place. It doesn't. Look, ultimately it doesn't matter at all, but I wanted to give you another section since I'm already cutting the current status part and this is going to be short. We know where space battles are and nothing is surprising about that. But this section is important to talk about, because what circumstances should you care about doing this? And put very simply, is when it's matching the story style. Like if you're running an action-adventure game or writing an action-adventure story, this probably isn't it, chief. But telling a war is hell or, hey, this could be us if you don't stop flirting with Doomsday, you dumbass story, then yeah, this is probably going to be for you. And also consider this. The realistic way is actually the one that's weird in this case. I mean yeah, sure, we see space battles all the time, but never real but never the realistic ones. So if you want to show your audience something absolutely mind-bending or you're running harder sci-fi like the Expanse, then this is a great choice. It's also really great if your setting has other shit happening you want to focus on besides the space battle. Like if sure, this planet is under siege, but I care more about the planet then you can have the battle happening in the background and just jump in between chapters between months and be like, oh, by the way, that child that got fired uh, is resolved and it missed. And your audience will thank you for saving them time and effort and also be very impressed with your writing skills about being able to balance two stories at once. I'm not really... Your audience will never be impressed with you because audiences are inherently brain-broken to think that everything sucks. Uh, however, if you're running soft sci-fi or a place where it doesn't really matter or uh, you want set-piece massive space battles and that's all more your jam, you really don't need to do this. Like, sure, it might be cool to, at the end of the chapter, of this super intense space battle be like, oh, and that took two years. But your entire audience will be like, uh, what the fuck? I thought they were at their battle stations the whole time. Basically, you know, think of this like another tool in your toolbox, rather than something you have to use. But with that super short why it matters, let's go over the Applications section. Okay, so speaking of style and tool in your toolbox, let's use this section to actually talk about those. Because this is going to help you decide if you want to use it or not. So let's start with realism. The biggest pro of using realism is that it's almost entirely unexplored. Because this is literally cutting edge shit we're talking about. and The speculation in science isn't that old. You can really capitalize here to make something really weird and cool. Because no one is going to be expecting this. Combined with the weird timescale, the weapons being very familiar but also very weird, and the lack of urgency but overwhelming stress you can really impart on your audience, it becomes a very unique feeling in addition to a very unique form of combat. Secondly, you get the realism nerds to go fucking berserk. I mean, they love this shit and will love you so much for doing this to them. Which, I mean, if that's the audience you want, go ham. I will warn you, though, you got to be really consistent with this one. Especially because once you whip them into a frenzy and then fuck up, instead of being able to point those little maniac freaks at your enemies, they will attack you instead. And the last one is that you can actually have some cool character growth and character moments in the middle of a battle. Because I can tell you that's really fucking hard to do in other situations. In most cases, to not make your fights feel empty, it's important for them to add character growth, ultimately have a purpose, reveal something about your characters, or show and develop who they are. Hell, I mean, even just have it tied into the plot. And sometimes that can be hard to get across. But you know what makes that easier? Is if entire weeks, months, or even years of their lives happens between shots landing. I mean, think about that. You can have your characters sitting at battle stations, shit-talking between each other for an eight-hour shift while firing a coordinate point that's literally across the star system like it's no biggie, and then have them get off shift, keep talking, eat lunch together, and then go their separate ways. Have your main character go to bed, then wake up, talk to the love interest, and then get back on shift to see how the railgun shot they fired is going. And then have a close call where they call in to the captain that their station just reported a neutron beam being fired, and they have four minutes to maneuver out of the way, and then have them white-knuckle as a beam of neutrons cause a minor hole breach because they maneuvered just in time. Like, that's actually pretty awesome. I mean, you can write an entire novel using just one battle. And the biggest drawback? This is fucking hard. I mean, even when writing this script... I know I got the math wrong. And it took a lot of getting used to figuring it out too. But it's also really hard because it's hard to demonstrate the level of danger when everything is on that time scale. Because humans are really good at procrastinating because we look at the immediate future. And the difference between a fucking rocket pummeling into us in a week and an hour is astronomically different in our brains. So having that level of procrastination also means that we stop giving a shit about the danger in a fucking book. And it's also hard to make the actual battle exciting because nothing happens until suddenly, boom, all your favorite characters are dead because that missile that took six months to get here was getting body-blocked by remote drones and just hit subsection C and now the pilot that you really like and that you were going to make a waifu pillow out of in subsection Alpha Beta A is paste on the wall. Second, the fights are really time-consuming and take not only a reasonable knowledge of math and science to do accurately, but also takes a lot of balancing of distances and objects and mapping. I mean, like, sure, you can write that the enemy fired shots A through M and your ship fired shots Alpha to Zeta, but those shots are still moving. And not only that, but also all those drones and shit moving towards you you shot down? Yeah, they're still coming too but in pieces. So, you know, track that too, please. On top of all this, the ships are moving. And because of that, distances are constantly changing. So good fucking luck with that too. And finally, because this is really unique and cutting edge, and most of the combat is speculative in nature, it's kind of hard to lean on your audience's knowledge. Because sure, in other settings, you could be like, oh, you know, like dogfighting with planes. And they'd understand because they've seen space movies or World War II documentaries. That isn't the case here. Because if we say, oh, you know, like astronomical units. Most audience won't go, ah, I see the distance from the sun to the earth. I know exactly how far that is and have no further questions and need no other context. Thank you. Okay, so now for the sci-fi style. The biggest benefit is how exciting it is. Which is the point. This kind of battle is fast, explosive, literally, figuratively, and sexually. uh, Hit me up. And it's also exciting to see. Because there's a lot of cool shit to look at, and also a lot of cool noises and shit. Especially the cool noises. That's the part a lot of people are into. That's like the baby sensory videos for adults. You know, the ones where people die at the end. Which... <laughs> Sorry, that was a little bit ad-libbed. I caught myself off guard with that one. Uh, uh, which wouldn't happen in a realistic setting because there's no sound in space. But again, most people don't consider these things. Which is fair because everyone knows that this isn't how it would look. Next is that you can pull from real-world stuff. Yeah, like we've already mentioned, if you don't know enough or don't want to explain something, you can do the narrative version of you know, like how they do in the Air Force, or, you know, like how it's in the Navy, except in all the gay ways, then your entire audience is collectively nods and agrees to not look like unpatriotic dumbasses that don't know how the Navy gets down. Or that they didn't watch that World War II American propaganda documentary. And this also allows you to lean on their expectations and can let you introduce some weird, weird real-world shit, too. You know, like how some naval vessels before World War II were zebra-painted to confuse visual targeting systems. You know, like maybe cover your ships in a weird paint job that makes them seem like part of the star field behind them or something. Okay, and third, you don't really have to know much of anything about science. Because this style's a honey badger. Tried to give a fuck once and just wasn't for it. All you really need are your own creativity a vague understanding of the general laws of physics, and a little bit of knowledge of military history. Which shouldn't be too hard to do. I mean, you also don't really need to lean on too much speculation. Oh, and as part of this, you get anti-realism fanboys that tell other nerds to grow up for not liking that you've blatantly ignores the laws of physics to make a point. Okay, and the cons. Firstly, it's... It's not that it's overdone, but it's it's expected. People expect very high sci-fi kind of space battle. So while it's not necessarily that people are gonna check out, it might be kinda of boring to them. Or alternatively, they might not think they're doing it the way that they like to see it done. And because sure, it's safer, but a lot of people don't want the author to be safe. They want them to do something weird in the way that they like it. And it's hard to be unique because so many people have done this one before. So it's extra difficult on top of that. Secondly, you're automatically going to lose some people. Why? Well, I mean, some of them will be because everyone has a rock-hard erection for realism right now. Which, look, I, I get it. Uh, I have to talk to my doctor about mine. But also, I didn't walk into sci-fi being like, Alright, motherfuckers, this better fit in my expectation of physics, or I'm going to fucking scream. But some people do do that. They try to make it your problem. But I mean, you're also going to lose people that see your work as derivative of their least or most favorite work. Like any grimdark, will be automatically compared to 40k, and suddenly, Ultramarine Sucker 6969 or Big Mommy Slanush will be in your DMs calling you the gamer words. And lastly, the spectacle and speed can get in the way of the story sometimes. I mean, like, sure, it's cool, but looking at your battle scene with a fine tooth comb, you might realize you learned nothing about the characters at all, and it did nothing for the plot. I mean, in fact, nothing really substantial happened at all, which is not what you want to happen. And being more subdued and deliberate in your writing might actually hurt you if people are expecting more than that. So, I mean, you know, think about these things before you use either style for your toolbox. You know, like I said on Waytad, kind of like playing with your butt. Do you want something satisfying, but slow and deliberate, and also a little bit difficult to set up, and leaves you feeling good about yourself? Or, something that's a lot more exciting, and fast-paced, with a lot of pretty lights, and colors, and noises, but it leaves you feeling kind of hollow inside, as you realize no one's ever going to fuck you like that? On to the soapbox. (sighs) <sighs> Why I ever stop talking about that stuff? I mean, eventually, it was going to take some serious intervention from my closest friends and at least one of my parents. And then I'll only stop because it's embarrassing to get called out. But anyways, what do I think about space battles? Realistic ones, at least in theory, sound really fucking cool. I would love to watch or read that. Do I want to be the one producing that? Oh, fuck no, I don't. That sounds like a fucking nightmare. But at the same time, I find it so fascinating that the ideas are literally percolating as I write this. Ideas I might be working on by the time you're listening to this part. And I'm probably never going to use it unless that's the point of what I'm doing. And also, unless I find a way to automate basically the entire thing. Because fuck you, I'm not doing that math. And sci-fi-esque space battles? Yeah, I'll use them. I look, I'd... S- like to say that I use the realistic ones, but I won't, and I'll feel guilty about it. Because I, I want to do something a lot more unique than just like, a bunch of dog fights. But, you know, like, ah. Oh, also, if you don't, if you didn't see the the clear setup here, this has to be your first episode, and you also don't know me in real life. Which, hey, stick around. Uh, because, actually, I would combine these two things. Look at me t- taking the uh, fence-sitter approach, like I always do. Justify a sci-fi space battle with some realistic physics. Like, hey, I know it's impractical, but the Space Empire uses piloted space fighters because, sure, they're less maneuverable because you got to worry about G-forces and like keeping the pilot alive and all that stupid shit. But there's less response lag at great distances because of the speed of light you know, and, like, it doesn't matter how far away you get from the ship, the pilot's still there. So that, you know, you can have, like, a, a dogfight between fighter pilots. Or make a boarding scene because, you know, some clever dickhead in your story figured out, hey, if everyone is prepped for long-range fights, why don't we just sneak up on them and board them? Or, well, how about we just send a boarding pod because no one inside of the ship has a rocket launcher? Or the other way around and add some sci-fi to the realism. Maybe I have an alien species that's figured out some super materials and now their ships are immune to lasers and now the humans are fucked. Or, have a missile being protected on its way to an enemy ship by a group of fighters or drones and follow them protecting the missile before it impacts with the enemy and blows the entire thing apart. See, this is why I said that's a good tool for your toolbox. Because sure, it has a purpose and it's excellent at that, but there's other uses. I mean, come on, talk to your nearest handy friend or family member, and don't worry, I'll wait. Uh, when the, I'm, I'm not going to wait. When the last time they used a tool for its intended purpose, and besides, after being offended, after they think about it for a second, they'll probably realize that they actually don't entirely remember. Or that when they did, they used it with another tool. Or that, you know, They buy all their tools, and they don't look up how to use them, and they don't really know how to use them, so they just use them for whatever the fuck. But, you know, don't be afraid to do the same thing as a writer. Except not knowing how to use your tools. You need to be careful with that. But, end of showtime. All right, and that is episode 14. Make sure to tune in next time when I talk about sieges for the fantasy side of things. Also, I'm not going to do land or sea battles, because, no, fuck you. But, anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed, like it, leave a review, whatever else it is you can do on your platform of choice. Send me an email at wait at gmail.com with questions, concerns, opinions, compliments, insults, um actually, some of your space battle ideas that I'm absolutely, definitely not going to steal why your everything-proof Void Shield negates my entire fucking episode, and anything else you want it to tell me. Also, follow me on Twitter at WayTat underscore Pods. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waitat, where I talk about things that actually happen in the real world that we write about space to escape. All right, and have a good night. Have fun. Keep writing. And remember, tip your pilot. They're very very stressed from all these lasers and they are one not maneuvering away from just fucking killing you. This has been why aren't you talking about this nerd and I've been your host William. Good night.